Hey ho, tutor-minded people. I'm Gage. I'm Jessica. We're Tutor Time Machine, and this is episode 49 of our podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And if this is your first time finding us in the pod sphere, it is best to start at episode one. This is a story project, and it goes in order, and we do not want you to miss any twists and turns of our tale. We're so excited to see where all our thousands of listeners come from. It's from all over the world. It's incredible. We've had such a great time researching and imagining this project and sharing it with everyone. And if you are enjoying it, please support us and buy some Tudor Time Machine swag. Go to our Tudor Time Machine Facebook page, hit the Shop Now button, and you'll see all these wonderful items that we have for sale. You can get a Do You Tudor tea or a Tudor Time Machine logo sweatshirt, and you'll be supporting the podcast at the same time and we really appreciate it we thank you in advance so as you remember in our last episode we saw rutland's attempt to be with his true love go so wrong so wrong but now we're taking our Tudor time machine back to 1532 after the reading we'll have fun discussing the history beyond our tale and making connections between then and now read on jesse chapter 49 1532, Quarendon House, the home of Margaret and Antony Lee, in which Anne Boleyn lays bare a dangerous future. Antony was so doting as he led Margaret to a comfortable seat, to be home and resting a fine thing. Margaret had only returned from France and the endless journey to London but a week. Antony was kissing her hand, and he called to their unborn son, assuring that the Lady Anne Boleyn's visit would please the babe. Margaret did not want her husband to stay to greet Anne. There was trouble, of what sort she could not tell, but Anne would not drag herself to the country for a simple visit. Antony all but danced on the Lady Anne's arrival. He wished to hear tales of life at court. Margaret wished Anne and her husband would walk out through the garden and leave her. Their ceaseless need to include her in their prattle obliged her to listen. Anne managed to send Antony on an errand, and as soon as he was out, she whispered at Margaret, I think I am with child. Anne, what joy! Margaret moved chairs to sit by her friend, putting her arm around Anne's waist and kissing her cheek. Oh, how perfect! Our children will be great friends together. Have you told the king? He will be happy. Oh, Anne, how well things turn for you. Anne's face was bowed a bit. Why do you not smile? Are you fearful for the baby? What presses on you? Margaret, I have not lain with the king. The shock of it knocked the wind out of Margaret. She wanted to cuff Anne, who paced before her, hands on her hips. And then she felt the tears in her eyes. Dear God, Anne, Anne, what have you done? I wanted to be happy. I wanted someone, someone I chose. Anne, oh, Anne, how could you give in to such desire? You must leave. We must send you away, back to France. Margaret stood to stop her pacing. Anne, what do you say? Margaret, Margaret, if I tell you, will you still be my dearest friend? It is something that will make you terribly angry. Anne's baby was her brother's. Margaret knew it, and she raised her hands and shoved Anne as hard as she could. Anne fell onto the bench. Forgive me, oh, Margaret, Margaret, forgive me. Get out, you vain whore. I cannot stand you. How could you do this? You will both be dead. My God, you are a wanton beast. I curse you. Anne got to her feet, holding her hands up in self-defense. Dare you, dare you. On that night in Calais, 
The night the king angered you, Margaret demanded. Anne nodded. Margaret had never seen Anne so cowed. Do you ladies wish a walk about the garden? Her husband called from the door. Dear heart, said Margaret, the lady Anne and I have much to discuss. He shut the door with a nod. Flee, Anne. The French court will not take me. Where will I go? To be a beggar in the street? And Henry will haunt me. Then you should not have taken my brother to your bed. Margaret, oh, Margaret, I love him well, and I cannot regret that we were together many nights before we reached London. Spare me the love law. Margaret, in the past, all those times I was with Thomas, I never conceived. I did not think it would happen. Oh, how absurd. Are you not a woman? Is he not a man? How could you be so reckless? How far past are you? Once missed. Oh, God, that you would fall off your horse, that this would end. Anne began to pace again. Anne, may God forgive me, but it is not too late. You urge a visit to the midwife in Smithfields. There are ways. Potions and pricks and crushing the womb? Anne, I do not know, but I have heard. I have also heard that often it does not work, and the woman is the worse for it. I am afraid to die that way. Margaret rubbed her hands. Anne, how could you have been so rash? And to carry on and on when Henry is bent on having you as queen? I care not. I care no longer. Henry is a fool, a childish, spoiled tyrant, a vain and tempestuous braggart, a lout. What righteous words for one who has no claim to them. Henry is your brother's lesser in every way. I fooled myself to think otherwise. I hate Henry's desperation, his drooling desire, his violent temper. I think that I shall tell Henry. Tell him I love your brother. That is the most foolish suggestion I have ever heard. You cannot mean it. It is out of the question. The king will kill you both before blinking. The thought of his rage scares me. Anne, he spent years to be rid of Queen Catherine for you. You would glide up to him with this news and expect him to be mild? He will kill you where you stand as you utter the words, and more, he will kill Thomas. What a rational universe were it free from love. Dear God, what to do? There is only one thing, Anne. Listen to me. You must lie with Henry. Nay, I do not want to. I only want your brother. Well, you will die instead and take my brother with you. Stop, Margaret. Even if I lie with the king, he will know it was not his. How? Henry and Thomas are men similar in colour and stature. She saw Anne consider, and then a curled lip of disgust crossed Anne's face. It is your own fault, barked Margaret, but you must do it. You will not lead my brother to slaughter. Indeed, lie with the king, moan a bit, think of my brother or the beauty of Adonis I care not. Do not make a face, Anne. Tonight, as soon as possible, have done with it. This is my thinking. Put a little chicken blood on the sheets. Henry will be too proud to ever question your honesty. Anne rubbed her temples, wincing at the thought. Henry would fall for such a ruse. And a few weeks hence, announce you are with child. Margaret, I have sent Henry away from my bed, even as he moaned and poured. I have resisted gifts, titles. I have locked the door for seven long years. What will I tell him? That you must give in. He will not question your change of heart. He will congratulate himself, and he will crow at your being with child so quickly, and never doubt that the babe is his. And if Thomas's child will be a Tudor? So be it. It will not be the first time a commoner has become royalty. Bed the king, pass the child off. Henry will thrill to think himself so potent. He will never doubt, but only hurry a marriage. 
What choice is before me? You know I could not bring your brother harm. Oh, I have never been unfaithful to the king. He was neither my lover nor my husband. So how can I be accused of cuckolding him? If I bed and marry him, I will be bound to be faithful. Thomas will be lost to me. And that is the end on it. Marry the king. Have done with Thomas. Save him. I will come to court as soon as I am able. I will help you bear the burden. Margaret clasped the overwrought Anne in her arms. The last time we saw Anne and Margaret, they were in Calais. This chapter takes place after the king's return to London. Henry and his entourage took their time returning from their trip to the continent. Anne and Henry left for Calais in early October, but they didn't return to London until the end of November because bad weather kept them all in Calais for weeks. And then they made a few stops on the way back at Leeds Castle, at Stone, and at Eltham Castle. When they got back to London, Henry took Anne to see his treasure chamber at the Tower of London, and he said, pick out a few things, hun. (laughs) And meanwhile, Catherine of Aragon was sent to a castle in Bedfordshire and most of her ladies-in-waiting and servants were dismissed. Things were getting worse and worse for her. And delegations from the king kept turning up at this castle to try to get Catherine to agree to the annulment. And she kept saying, look, don't call me the Dowager Princess. I am the Queen of England and the king's true wife. The Spanish ambassador, Eustace Chapuis, actually wrote to Charles V, Catherine's nephew, and urged him to declare war on Henry. Mm -hmm. And Chapuis assured Charles that the English people completely supported Catherine, they hated Anne, and it would be easy to overthrow Henry. And it might have been, but we'll never know, right? Right. But Charles V essentially didn't do anything to help his aunt. So despite the fact that Catherine was from the most important family in Europe at this time, the Habsburgs, they didn't give her much. And apparently Catherine herself didn't want any bloodshed over the matter because she considered that would be horrible and sinful for a war to be fought over this issue of her marriage. And in fact, no leader in Europe supported Henry's actions against his wife, but also no one cared enough to really do anything about it, and certainly not to go to war over it. Francis I of France played it both ways. During the trip to Calais, he gave Henry the impression that he supported him. (laughs) But Francis turned around and told the Pope that he had told Henry not to marry Anne. He also assured Henry that he would never make an alliance with the Pope by arranging a marriage with one of his own sons to the Pope's niece, but that marriage took place soon after Henry's trip to Calais. And despite disapproval from his own people and other monarchs, Henry just plowed on. It seems like he became obsessed with doing it because of the resistance Mm -hmm. against it. Sure. Henry didn't like anyone to tell him what to do. He didn't like anyone to get in his way. And Henry gave a statement concerning his great matter at Bridewell Palace in 1528 to get the people on his side. The king started off praising Catherine of Aragon and claiming to be devastated that God was against their marriage. But then... (laughs) It hurts me more than it hurts her, right? I mean, you can hear it. But then there was some shouts of, get back to your wife. And that came from the crowd. And the French ambassador reported that Henry became enraged. And he screamed that if anyone dared to criticize him in this matter, he would show them who was the master. And there was no head so fine that he would not make it fly. Mm, Yeah. 
That's terrible. And Anne was probably cheering him from the sidelines, never suspecting that in a few short years, that royal temper, that royal stubbornness would be turned on her. Given that Princess Elizabeth was born on September 7th, 1533, Anne must have gotten pregnant in late November or early December. In the long seven years of their premarital relationship, when did Anne and Henry start sleeping together? In our reading, we solve the issue in a historical fiction, secret history way. And though, of course, we're not saying this is what happened, that Elizabeth's father was not Henry VIII, it is possible given the murkiness around Anne and Henry's sex life. There was lots of gossip about Elizabeth not being Henry's. Princess Mary questioned Elizabeth's paternity and even suggested Elizabeth looked like Mark Smeaton. And of course she chose Mark Smeaton of all the men who were killed with Anne Boleyn because that would both make Anne an adulteress and disgraceful in how she had chosen someone so far beneath her. There's so many times when people doubted the paternity of a child. You know, to sort of further that, It is also interesting that during the events of 1536, Lady Jane Parker and sister-in-law, Lady Jane Parker was married to Anne's brother, George Boleyn, she reported that Anne had told her that Henry was, quote, not able to satisfy a woman, and he had neither capacity nor virility. So this is a constant question. What if if Edward was not Henry's either? (laughs) Now you're really going off the deep end. But, I mean, Henry clearly had some sexual problems yes and you know and i actually think with a king who was more uh pliable in his sexual arousement (laughs) the marriage to anne of cleves might have been consummated it seems like henry's virility was a tricky thing this led to other gossip that she slept with other men to get pregnant because she knew she had to produce Mm -hmm. leading again to who was Edward's father. Right. But anyway, (laughs) George Boleyn was asked if he knew Henry to be impotent, and he wouldn't answer the question. Right. He wouldn't answer the question because it would also imply that Elizabeth was not Henry's child. It would. And at the trial, the question was written on a piece of paper and handed to George Boleyn because people didn't want to read it out loud. I remember reading that George Boleyn actually did, he himself read it out loud to the court and then basically said no comment. What anyone said or did not say in 1536 is prejudicial to one side or the other. So we can't take it too seriously. Sure. I mean, so many rumors and clearly blatant lies. And it's very hard for us to sort it all out 400 years later. Henry was very defensive about his ability to have sex and produce heirs. And to produce heirs, but not just that. I mean, he kept saying to people, you know, am I not a man like other men? He had an issue with this. And the rumors, those kind of rumors naturally swirled around all the time about paternity because, of course, you couldn't do a paternity test or anything. In Henry's case, they were even more prevalent because of this sort of knowledge at court that he had some sexual dysfunction. To add to this sort of question of Henry's sexuality, did they or didn't they wait for the seven years? There are actually two different dates for the marriage between Henry and Anne. Because the 16th century historian Edward Hall states that Henry and Anne were secretly married on November 14th, 1532. But Archbishop Thomas Cranmer, who actually married them, refers to their secret marriage date as being January 25th. 1533, and he does not refer to an earlier marriage, which I think he would have known about had he married them again. And Edward Hall gave the date of November 14th in his book, The Union of the Two Noble and Illustrious Families of Lancaster and York, 
which was published posthumously in 1548. And Cranmer gave his date in a contemporary letter and said that among other witnesses of that wedding was Sir Henry Norris, which is a little ironic because he was one of the five men who were executed with Anne. So what do we think about these two marriage dates? Well, I don't think Anne and Henry had two secret wedding ceremonies. That seems very unlikely. What would be the point? To me, the January date makes sense, and by that time Anne was pregnant, so Henry had a very pressing reason to push a marriage then. And the, you know, secret of this secret wedding was not really a secret at court, because apparently Anne and Henry dropped a lot of hints that they had been married. And there's a story that Anne told our own Sir Thomas Wyatt that she had a hankering for apples, and that the king had told her that she must be pregnant. I don't know, November 14th on the way back from Calais? It just seems sort of random to me. And then why have a second ceremony in January? In January, it wasn't as if Henry's annulment from Catherine was suddenly accepted by the Pope, and they could have an official marriage or anything like that. It doesn't seem to make sense for them to have two marriages that were sort of similar. At that time in 1530, that November wedding was only a rumor, one that Edward Hall stated as a fact when he wrote his history of the Tudors in the 1540s. I'm not saying that he falsified the date, but he went with a rumor because a marriage date in November between Henry and Anne would better fit the narrative that Anne and Henry were married when Elizabeth was conceived and that Anne waited to have sex with the king. And that was better for how people would perceive the situation and also her legitimacy. Right, because by 1548, Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn were both dead, and the surviving children were Edward, who had just taken the throne, Mary and Elizabeth. And also Edward Hall was writing for an audience in 1548 that was leaning towards Protestantism. And I'm not saying he falsified a date, but he took the date that fit the narrative he wanted to present. Yes. He didn't want to risk delegitimizing a living princess. The question is, I guess, though, did they wait until they were married anyway? Because they were courting or going through all this crazy for seven years. And by all contemporary accounts, Henry did not take a mistress during that time. So would the king of England really go without sex for seven years? And for that matter, would Anne? No, I mean, of course, you know, historians focus on Henry's unlikely celibacy, somehow assuming that Anne, a young woman of a certain character, obviously very, I don't want to say sexual because that sounds like I'm judging her, but sort of very out there, that she would have been fine going without sex for all that time. And as far as we know, she did not have sexual dysfunction. No, (laughs) as far as we know, she did not. (laughs) To that point, the Spanish ambassador reported a big fight between Henry and Anne in 1529, where supposedly she told the king, I have been waiting long in the meanwhile have contracted some advantageous marriage out of which I might have had issue which is the greatest consolation in this world but alas farewell to my time and youth spent to no purpose at all Anne had a point she wasn't getting any younger either apparently she wanted children of course she did because at that time that was what women were supposed to achieve Antonio Fraser suggests that Anne and Henry were having sex but practicing coitus interruptus for seven years and she she never accidentally got pregnant? It seems impossible, but considering Henry... Also, didn't the church at that time actually prohibit any sexual practices that inhibited procreation? Henry thought God was punishing him for marrying his brother's wife because it said you shouldn't do that in Leviticus. Wouldn't he worry that God would kill him for, quote, emitting his seed? I mean, isn't that what happened to Onan in Genesis? Didn't God smote him for such a thing? Well, I think... 
think Henry VIII was pretty consistent in his religious convictions, and definitely that's how he made his choices. <laughs> oh, dear. Henry believed what suited him at the moment, like all of us. No, I know, I know. And of course, this is not an issue that only we think about historically looking back, because the sex life of a king was a national issue because of getting children and who was in favor and all these other things. At the time, of course, there was gossip that Henry and Anne had had secret children that were hurried away from court never to return. That is so unlikely. For one thing, because, as you say, it would be impossible for Anne to hide multiple pregnancies. There were so many eyes on her. And hostile eyes. Host- Some of them were hostile eyes. Yes. Yeah. And also, Henry would have legitimized them in a second after his marriage to Anne. He needed as many heirs as he could possibly get. As we said, Francis had seven kids and ended up with one. And this idea that you could legitimize heirs after a marriage and that they would then be accepted as legitimate, that had a precedent. I mean, that had happened in the times of other kings. And Henry was always making people legitimate and illegitimate and legitimate. Well, Antonia Fraser's scenario is that it was Henry not Anne, who wanted to wait to have full sex until they were married because he was so desperate for a legitimate heir. That would mean that from the beginning of his infatuation with her, Henry was set on marrying her, not having her be a mistress or a fling. He was going to make her his wife because he was just that kind of guy. And get an annulment from Catherine of Aragon. <laughs> I mean, he had an existing wife. I, I just don't think in 1526 or 1527, he was remotely planning forward in that way. I mean, Henry was absolutely not a planner. No. He was not projecting himself into the future and being like, oh, Anne, she's the good queen for England. Right, that's what I need, yeah. His letters don't seem to indicate that. But it's such a bummer that we don't have Anne's letters to him. We just have his letters to her. Who knows what was in Anne's letters? She just had to be so much more careful. Her situation was so complicated with a living queen. Was she going to hold out on Henry a little bit? Was she going to be careful about what she said in letters that could be used against her? Which, I mean, she just, I think people just assume that, that there was an equality of communication between these two people, but the power structure would have made that pretty much impossible. Impossible. So whatever Anne wrote, we still wouldn't really know. Henry was free to say whatever he liked. And in fact, we have a letter from Henry, and it was written in 1527, and he's quite eloquent. And open and and clear. And open and clear. And he writes, In turning over in my mind the contents of your last letters, I have put myself into great agony, not knowing how to interpret them, whether to my disadvantage, as you show in some places, or to my advantage, as I understand them in others. There you go. He's even saying, I don't know what what your feelings are. She's being very careful. He goes on to say, beseeching you earnestly to let me know expressly your whole mind as to the love between us two. It is absolutely necessary for me to obtain this answer, having been for above a whole year stricken with the dart of love and not yet sure of whether I shall fail of finding a place in your heart and affection, which last point has prevented me for some time past calling you my mistress. Because if you only love me with an ordinary love, 
That name is not suitable for you because it denotes a singular love which is far from common. But if you please to do the office of a true loyal mistress and friend and to give up yourself body and heart to me, which sounds like he's already willing to give up his body (laughs) and his heart. So I think supports that she's the one who's holding out. Who will be and have been your most loyal servant? If your rigor does not forbid me, (laughs) I promise you that not only the name shall be given you, but also that I will take you for mine only mistress, casting off all others besides you out of my thoughts and affections and serve only you. I beseech you to give an entire answer to this my rude letter, that I may know on what and how far I may depend. And if it does not please you to answer me in writing, appoint some place where I may have it by word of mouth. And I will go thither with all my heart, no more, for fear of tiring you. Written by the hand of him who would willingly remain yours. H.R. So, one, it's clear he is asking her to be his mistress. There's no talk of marriage yet. And two, reading between the lines of this letter, we can see that Anne is not being clear with him. She's protecting herself because he's begging her in this letter in many different ways. He says, you know, tell me what's going on. Tell me your heart. Tell me your mind. Tell me where I stand. It's clear that she's understandably protecting herself, but leading him on a bit, not repelling him. Maybe some historians in the past have interpreted that side of Anne as cunning toying with him because she was a calculating and unkind person instead of the fact that she was in an almost impossible situation and she wasn't sure what she should do. She was treading water. Yes. She was waiting to see how it was all going to go. And clearly he's trying to persuade her that he is so singular of heart and mind that he will make her his mistress, not his wife. But he, and he's so singular of heart and mind until he doesn't feel like being like that anymore. She's the one who has a lot to lose. He has nothing to lose. He has nothing. He's nothing at stake? No, he has nothing at stake, except that he wants to have sex with her, which is fine. It really burned in his heart. He wanted that. But in terms of the repercussions of that, he has nothing at stake. He makes a point of saying that he has been in love with her for a whole year, implying that she has been keeping him at a distance all that time. I don't think we can judge anything about Anne's feelings about Henry because for ordinary people to just say, hey, I'm just not that into you. That is hard in the most average situation. (laughs) But we have no idea. Maybe she thought it was exciting, but she was like, I got to watch out. Myself. Yeah. Yeah. We don't know. No, I think it's much harder to judge whether Anne was really in love with Henry. Clearly, from this letter, he really wants her, and he really believes at that moment that he's in love with her. Of course, the romanticized version is that theirs was a great, sexy, passionate love that consumed them both. A la TV shows, like the Tudors version. Exactly, but we don't have Anne's side of the events. And given the time period and her position as such a subordinate to the king, it's absolutely impossible unless we could go back in time and interview her to know what she really felt. Personally, I sense that her restraint, her calculation, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I understand why she had to be calculated. They indicate to me that she was not swept off her feet, not passionately in love with Henry. Because if she had been, I think she would have accepted his offer to make her his mistress. She would have accepted his love immediately. She would have been as born away as him. And he's saying, it's okay to give yourself to me. I will catch you. 
And she would have been like, okay, I'm going to jump. Because people who are passionately in love don't usually play the long game. No, Do you when, know what I mean? When Mary was in love with Charles Brandon, they knew it would piss off Henry. But they did it anyway. But they did it anyway. And Mary, Queen of Scots, knew it would piss off Elizabeth to marry Darnley, but she was madly in love with him, and she did it anyway, and then she lived to regret it. Yeah. But... But Anne is not jumping, even though this man who has all the power and all the money and all the riches is saying, if you jump into my arms, I will catch you and you'll get stuff out of it. I I just I don't get the sense that she's burning with the kind of love or lust or desire that he's burning with. As a woman at court, if Henry turned his eye on you, it would be impossible to reject him. Sure. I mean, the only choice was to leave court entirely or to go along with it. I can't imagine that someone of Anne's sophistication didn't see through Henry to a certain extent, didn't see that he was not the kind of person he projected himself being, that he was not a true Renaissance man of letters, a true warrior, an athletic giant, a wise statesman. Henry's father was a warrior. As far as I know, I mean, Henry didn't have some great skill on the battlefield you know i'm sure he was a good musician but we've shared with you guys some of his songs and they're pretty bad (laughs) (laughs) he's a statesman who seems to give a lot of power to people and then get mad at them and take it away and he's too unsteady and he's too needy to be a great ruler there are benefits to be chosen by the king Briefly, she has quite a bit of influence, which I think is probably what she was after. It was also extremely precarious because when he's done with you, that is it. No, all the power is in his hands. And I am so sure Anne saw that. Henry liked a feisty mistress, but he did not like a feisty wife. The chase was compelling, but once he got Anne, he wanted her subdued and compliant, which in fact she never was. She was the same person. And after they were married, he also turned around and complained of her sexuality. He told the Spanish ambassador that he discovered after their marriage that she, quote, had been corrupted in France, which, again, if we take that as a true statement, he's implying that he had not had sex with her before marriage. Let us know on our Tudor Time Machine Facebook page or on Tudor Time Machine Twitter. Do you think Anne was in love with Henry or not? And do you think she might have had a friend like Lady Margaret who would have helped her? Or do you think her friends would have turned her in? So you'll have to write us like a little essay. A lot of things. And do you think she was pregnant when she married him or not? Because we do know that Anne and Henry were married and Anne gave birth to Elizabeth but we will never know exactly how it all happened. And we're not conspiracy theorists, not at all. But situations are never simple. With power and a man like Henry, absolutely not. And next episode, we'll see how Constance is bearing up in prison. So join us next time for more Times Riddle and more Tudor-minded talk. (laughs) 